Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 will be page 980 on the Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there as we continue in our series through this letter. But if you uh, were to think about uh, Jesus' ministry on earth and the way the gospel writers portray his ministry, um, all the writers of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John, uh, in their own way, um, tell us that the relationships between the 12 disciples, the 12 primary men that were following Jesus, being equipped by him, that the relationships between them towards the end weren't great. And I don't think we hear this much because we like to think that these disciples came from all different walks of life and began to follow Jesus. And as they grew closer to Jesus, that they became best friends themselves and were just all in together. But the Bible is very realistic in telling us what happened, that, that things actually got pretty tense amongst them. They grew competitive with one another. There was a sense of distrust and rivalry for attention and for affirmation. And as is often the case when we're around people a lot, we tend to see their weaknesses. We tend to grow cynical about uh, their tendencies. And these men, they grew frustrated with one another. And so uh, you have a couple things that kind of highlight this. Towards the end of his gospel, Matthew tells us the story of two brothers amongst the twelve, James and John. They were actually accompanied by their mother, and they approached Jesus quietly on the side and said, Jesus, give us the guarantee that we will sit on your right and on your left in the kingdom, that we get the most prominent spots on the throne. And the other men, when they heard about this, they, Matthew tells us, grew indignant at them. They were furious at them, and the reality is they were probably furious because They wanted it too. And they just didn't have the courage to ask first. And that happened shortly after another scene where they were all walking on the road towards Jerusalem. And Jesus heard them talking about something and kind of arguing and debating about something. And Jesus approaches them and just goes, guys, what's up? What are you talking about? Maybe I can help out. And one of them just sheepishly says, we're arguing about which of us is the greatest. And then on the night of the Passover, the night Jesus would be eventually arrested, they are gathered in the upper room, and some of the disciples got there ahead of time to set things up, to set up the meal, the most important meal of the year, but none of them took charge of the foot washing. You know, it was customary at that time when people came into the room for a meal, especially the Passover, that they would get their feet washed They've been walking all day on dirt roads, wearing, I don't know, sandals or something along those lines. Their feet would be dirty, and so it would not be right to go and recline at the table with dirty feet. So you'd walk in, and a servant would wash everyone's feet. It was a lowly job. It was a servant's job. And John's gospel, it's interesting, is the only one that tells us they actually all got to the table with dirty feet. And they're reclining at the table, the way they're at the table, their feet are behind them. And so you'd have to imagine things are pretty tense in this room because this is not supposed to be the way it happens. And yet nobody, none of the disciples feel like they should be the ones to do it. We're big time, man. 
This is the Passover meal. I'm not washing anyone's feet. And then John tells us Jesus stands up from the table, goes to the other side of the room, takes off his outer garment, gets a towel, wraps it around his body, pours water into a basin, and then works his way around the table, washing everyone's feet. And after doing so, we read this in John 13, 12 to 15. It'll be on the screen. You can follow there. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. We're in the midst of our series, preaching through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If you're just joining us this morning for the first time, we have taken the last three weeks to get through chapter 1, where we saw the sheer level of affection Paul has for this church and this community of believers, how encouraged he was by the reports he's hearing about them and how they're growing in the faith. And chapter 1, we could have spent three months in chapter 1. It's loaded in so many ways. He, he reminds the church of the assurance they have in Christ. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He speaks of his own circumstance of writing this letter from a prison in Rome. And yet he is rejoicing in chains because the gospel is going out. The advancement of the gospel, and it's taking root, and it's showing us that for the believer, our joy is not contingent on our circumstance. Our joy is based upon the work of our Savior, and that cannot be taken from us. So he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And his prayer, his singular prayer in this letter for this church community is that their love would abound more and more. Their love for their God, their love for one another. And he finishes this masterful chapter by saying, live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm, strive side by side in the faith. And now we come to chapter 2. And while I did say that Paul never directly addresses a specific issue in the church of Philippi, there's no open rebuke you're going to find in this letter, I think chapter 2 does reveal that he has a fear. His biggest fear for the members of the church of Philippi is that they would implode from within. Because, like the disciples who were walking with Jesus, they are human, and we are human, and we are like them. And people have a natural bent to be self-centered. And humility, man, it could be hard for us. And we know we can get cynical over time around, about the people that we are surrounded by. And the more we get to know one another. And so when Paul makes these kind of big sweeping statements, like stand firm together, stride side by side together, he does not then go on to talk about how the church needs to strategize how to defeat the culture around them, even though the Roman culture was pretty fierce in this time. Instead, where does he go? 
he focuses on how the church ought to act from within. What was true then in a place where the government was looking to persecute the church is even more true for us now in a place where we are not in a country where we are being persecuted as the church. And for all the fodder out there and the headlines about how we need to defend against culture and culture wars, the reality is that the Bible is far more concerned with how the church interacts with one another in its own community. Hear me, far more churches in the world close their doors because of internal fighting and disunity than they do by getting shut down by the government. Paul wants unity in the body of Christ. And this passage, which is one of the most classic passages in the Bible and the most studied passages in the Bible, is going to tell us why he wants that, why we should want it, what it actually looks like, and then he finishes with the example. How can it happen? So we're going to work through this passage. It's verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to start with just one verse. Philippians 2, 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, first he gives us the motivation. Paul is very, um, you'll find when you read him in the letters, he's very direct with his transitions. He's not much of a segue guy. Like, he, 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 his whole transition was, so, and we're off. I kind of love that about him. Like, so, everything I just said in chapter 1, which was a lot. That's why my intro was so long. So, because of all that, he gives us now a fourfold motivation for the command he's about to give us in verse 2. And it's this rapid-fire motivations of why we should be motivated for unity. And he's taking the trip, the church, on a trip down memory lane. You have to remember, this church in Philippi he's writing to, it's about 10 years old at this point. It's been roughly about 10 years since he's planted it in Acts chapter 16. And so everyone has been converted in the last decade. It's starting with Lydia, the successful businesswoman, starting with the ex-demon-possessed slave girl, we don't have her name, and then the duty-bound Roman jailer. There's the start of your church. And he wants them to remember the sweet recollections of what happened in their lives when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. First, if there's any encouragement in Christ, bringing them back to the, that experience of salvation when, when the Holy Spirit indwelled them for the first time, when that Holy Spirit strengthened them for the first time, when it gave them courage. That's what encouragement is, right? To give courage. I have a question. Do you, do you recall the sweet joy of what it was when you first believed in Jesus? For those in here who are believers, that first moment of realizing that you have been saved and restored, not because of what you've done, not because your life was so impressive, but because of what Christ has done for you. Do you recall that strength you felt? Or if you were saved as a very young child, there's probably some kind of watershed moment you had in your teenage or young adult years where you kind of got it, really got it for the first time. It's by grace. If there's any encouragement to that, the encouragement to just surrender and go all in. 
Second, if there's any comfort from love. I, I think he's speaking primarily there of experiencing that, that unconditional love of Christ. And, and the comfort that it brings, that nothing could separate you from it. That you are fully encouraged, fully loved, and the comfort that you get from that. Unbreakable love. Like, we cannot overestimate the power of unconditional love. Uh, there, there was, although I think we get shadows of it in our lives this year, um, that, or, or, or shadows of it in our lives in the, in the context of, like, what it is to unconditionally love somebody or be loved by somebody. So a couple years ago, um, I came across something that someone posted on social media. I rail against social media a lot in sermons. There's a lot of bad on there, but there's some good. There's, there's a few good things there from time to time. And this is one of the good things. Um, and it was a bedtime blessing that a parent shared that they try and say their child every single night. And it came at a time when Caden was just old enough to like have conversations at bedtime. And I was struggling with this, like, what should I do? At bedtime, what should I say to them? What's the last thing I want my child to hear before they fall asleep? And, and if you've kind of been in that moment, there's these, um, this kind of precious kind of couple minutes that you have, that you have your kid's attention. And for like whatever reason, they're kind of sweet in that moment. <laughs> Maybe like the first time that day, and you're like, I want to say something here, but I don't know what to say. And I came across this blessing, and we have a graphic on the screen. Parent, do you see my eyes? Yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? Yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Who else loves you like that? God does. Even more than me? Yes. Rest in that love. something I'm trying to do, a dialogue that I have now with Caden and Brindley, and I'll be fully honest, there's some night it ends like that and I'm gone. Most nights they want like water six times right after. <laughs> so my real last words are like, do not call me in again. This is it. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying imperfectly. But ideally, these are their last thoughts. Like, if there's any comfort from love, oh, there is comfort from love. Third, if there's any participation in the Spirit, that word participation is the same word that was translated partnership in chapter 1, when Paul said he's grateful for the church's partnership in the gospel. So he says, if we are invested in this together, if the Spirit makes us all partners, if we're all sharing in the risks and the losses of this thing together, if that's true, and then number four, if there's any affection and sympathy, uh, affection, a better translation there is tenderness. If there's a tenderness in you, a mercy, no, knowing that a merciful person is the best evidence that they understand what mercy really is. Fourfold recollections, motivations to do what Paul is about to tell us. But before we see exactly what it is, take note the power of remembering. How easy it is in the day-to-day -day grind of life to forget what God has saved us from. To forget what God has saved us into and the hope that that is. 
So church, build in day in your time, in your time in your day to remember. One of the most powerful weapons against the world of darkness that you have is your memory. And don't let it go to waste. And with all these ifs combined, all these sweet recollections for the church of Philippi to think about their faith, then, let's keep reading, Philippians 2, 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We saw the motivation, now we see the action. What does Paul actually want you to do? If these things are all true, then be unified and mutually care for one another in the church. And these things, Paul says, will complete his joy, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. That the man is in prison, and he's not going to get out of prison, and he says, my joy can be complete if I hear you guys are walking in this way. His joy is wrapped up in others before himself, over and above his circumstances. So here we are again. We see joy every week in this series so far. We're four for four. And the acronym for joy, as corny as, it's, as I shared, more people than I can count has said that's actually really helpful. Joy, Jesus, others, yourself. That's the recipe. Paul is supremely Jesus-centered and others-focused. And if they are unified, if they are standing firm in humility, that joy will overpower his current suffering. Um, I, I think you know, this idea of um, hearing that other people are walking and thriving brings us joy when we have invested in their life. I think we can relate to that. I think I hear a lot about it from teachers, people who are teachers who talk about former students that they just invested in, and then they hear a report that they are thriving and they're doing well. Just out of curiosity, who's a teacher in this room? If you're a teacher, raise your hand up high. Or a retired teacher. Pretty good amount. I think you guys would be able to testify. You hear a former student is doing well, and it brings you joy. I, th- I think about Pastor Jeff being in youth ministry for 38 years. The idea of a former student in his ministry walking with the Lord. In fact, last week, last Sunday here at Grace Church, there was a woman who was in her 20s uh, visiting from upstate New York. And when she was in high school, she went to the youth group here at Grace Church. And it was at a time when Megan Polanin, who is now our children's director, uh, was a volunteer leader within the high school ministry. And um, Megan was bummed that she didn't see her on Sunday because she was, you know, downstairs. But she had said in our staff meeting when she, we saw her connection card, that she goes, man, me and that girl were close. Like, that was my girl. And this is what that now woman, young woman, wrote on her connection card. Listen. She said, I just came to a point in my life that led me to truly find God, and I just got baptized. I just want to make sure I never lose sight of this path. And her just wanted to share that, but then the gift that was for Megan to hear that, to see that, just the joy in the midst of somebody following the Lord, that's what Paul is after if I think about times in ministry where I feel like I'm soaring in ministry, that I'm just so stirred up for what God has called me to, I'll tell you what, it's not after a sermon. I'm like, oh, I think I killed that one. <laughs> it's, 
It's not after we get to the end of the year, like, oh, we made budget. Ministry's awesome. It's the small moments that God just allows the grace for me to see someone growing. Just a small spiritual breakthrough. Someone to see them pursuing Christ, growing in Christ. That's the joy of ministry. And so Paul pleads with the church, complete my joy by being unified and being humble. Don't operate out of selfish ambition. Don't strive to be the ones who get all the accolades. Don't try and stand out while you use others to push down so you look better. In humility, he says, count others more significant than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. A healthy church, that organization Nine Marks, they want to build healthy churches. That's their slogan. It's not just good theological preaching. It's not just good music. It's not just a strong children's program. It's not good special events. A healthy church is a church where its members are unified and others-focused. And unity and humility, they're these kind of buzzwords. We talk about it a lot. You know, you'll hear it get thrown out often. We want to be unified. We want to be humble. But you can't talk your way into being humble. You, you don't accomplish unity by just wanting to be unified. You accomplish unity by counting others more significant than yourself and putting others' interests ahead of your own. If we're doing that mutually, then unity happens. And on the flip side, the opposites of unity and humility are rivalry and pride, and they are the twin killers of churches. The two primary reasons why churches die. And they always loom closer to us than we probably think. But I think we know that. I don't think I've said anything that anyone feels like, ah, that's the first time I'm hearing it. It's not a matter of being convinced that that's important. Often the problem is, how? How does this happen? It's a great question, and one I think Paul anticipated, because that's where he's going next. Let's read verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he thought, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We've seen the motivation, we've seen the action, now we see our chief example. These uh, six verses, some of you might know, verses 5 through 11, are pretty famous, I guess. They are what one commentator called it, the theological jewel of Philippians. Uh, Many commentators think that these verses were either um, Paul quoting an actual creed that was spoken often throughout the early church, or based on Paul's writing, it became a creed that was often seen in the early church because there's other documents where it pops up. But either way, creeds or hymns were vital to the early church, things that could be easily memorized, that were theologically robust to protect the faith. 
because they didn't have their Bibles all in their pews, and they didn't go to the internet and be able to Google theology at home. They had to memorize good truth in creeds. And these verses are the Mount Everest of passages on Christology. If you like theology, if you nerd out like I do in that, this is it, man. You could spend days in this. Verses 5 through 11, that Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. One person with two natures. But it's often kind of discussed out of context, of just talking about Jesus Christ and who he is, which is important. But in context, as we're reading it, why is Paul saying this? He's saying this to provide an example for us in the church to know how can we be unified, how can we be humble. Because we have a natural bent against those things. So he says, in order to do this, have the kind of mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. That Jesus provides both the power and the example for the church to be unified. And there's three components. We're going to go through it quickly. One, Jesus Christ is God. Christ did not begin to exist when Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Christ has been eternally God forever. And this is important that Christ didn't become God. He didn't just begin to reflect God. He wasn't just like God. He's the actual radiance of God. And the whole gospel, everything we do here, the whole reason we gather, hinges on the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. If you think about the major kind of monotheistic religions in the world, no one denies that Jesus existed. He's almost the most historically reliable person in the history of the world. He, without a shadow of doubt, existed. The question is, who was he? Judaism believes he was not God, but an imposter. Islam, the second largest religion in the world, not God, but merely a prophet. But we know Jesus to be God. He was there at creation. He was present throughout the whole Old Testament, but he was not manifested in the person of Jesus until the New Testament. And when Paul says he willingly emptied himself, not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, he's not saying that Jesus had to give up his godness in order to become a man. That's the central claim of liberal theology that really sprang up and got a lot of heat and momentum starting in the end of the 19th century. And Jesus was not God. That he did not contain the divine attributes. But the rest of the Bible simply does not allow us to, st- to have that stance. And I wish I could spend 13 hours going into that with you. I think I'd be alone by the end. But namely, John 10, 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. The rest of the Bible does not allow us to say that Jesus was not God. So that emptying is not that he gave up his godness, but that he chose in humility to take on flesh in order to save mankind, which leaves us with Jesus Christ, the God-man, one person, two natures. And in this way, he did only what God could do as God. And he sets an example for us of what we can do as men and women made in his image, which leads to number two, Jesus Christ humbled himself. In human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death. Jesus was not defeated. Listen closely. Jesus was not overcome. Jesus did not get humbled. He humbled himself. The word humble today gets, again, thrown around a lot. I think we generally think it's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing to be humble. We like humble people. Um, But in the first century, humble was not a good thing. It was not something people strove to be. Humble, humility, comes from the same root root word of humiliation. You were humiliated if you were humble. And no one chose to be humble themselves. Greek culture, not totally different from today, we're all about status. Like being conceited was positive, humility was negative, and Jesus takes it and he flipped it. Nobody tricked Jesus and got him to the cross. No one sent him to his death. He did not get outmaneuvered by the Pharisees. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he was obedient to death. But not just that. Paul says and emphasizes the brutality of the cross. Think about how he worded it. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, comma, even death on a cross. The man didn't just die. He died the most most humiliating death you could die. This was the most degrading way to go. In fact, I was reading that in polite Roman culture, like at dinner parties or social situations, it was an obscenity to even mention or talk about the cross in those situations. You weren't allowed to do it. And it's why it took centuries and the fall of the Roman Empire for the church to begin to embrace the cross as a symbol we were actually proud of. Because it was unthinkable for them to actually boast in the cross. And it wasn't until much later that the church started to adopt this symbol, a symbol that we have at the top above our screen that we fix our eyes upon. It's the cross. But it was so offensive, so brutal. And yet, the book of Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. It was his choice. He humbled himself. Not that he enjoyed the cross, but he enjoyed what it accomplished, the climax of redemptive history. And so for our example, humility, it's not weakness. It takes all the strength in the world to be humble. In humility, you're not giving ground, you're taking it. It's a sign of strength. And so Jesus, do not think that he thought less of himself. He was God. He could not think less of himself. He was God. But he chose to think of himself less in favor of giving glory to the Father and salvation to others. And then finally, number three, Jesus Christ is exalted. This creed starts high. Jesus was God. And then it goes on this downward trajectory. Christ begins in the heights, and he goes to empty himself, and he's born as a man, he's down to the point of death, but then in an instant, 
this downward trajectory is followed by a soaring exaltation. I'm going to give you a word picture now. Think about this in your mind. A catapult or something you use to catapult something. All right, this can be invisible. I don't like props. Okay, so you have something up here and you pull it back as a catapult. And the farther you pull it back, the higher it releases, doesn't it? Think about Jesus, the form of God, down emptied himself, down born as a man, down obedient to the point of death, down even death on a cross. And then, in a moment of release, he soars. In a moment of release, this downward trajectory is followed by a soaring exaltation. That moment of release being the resurrection. When the Father raises the Son from the grave, Christ is rightly given the name above every name. The name Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the great I Am. And Jesus is now reunited with the Father once again. And now that name that has eternally been true is clear for all to see. And what brings this to life to us at Grace Church in 2019 is that this creed, being written down 2,000 years ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit, ends with a truth that is as true today as the moment it was written. That Jesus is alive. And Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he is right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and upholding all things. And that language that every knee should bow and every tongue confess, that's not random. That comes from Isaiah 45, verse 23, when God says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And now he applies that to Christ. That's verse 23 of Isaiah 45. You know what's in verse 22? Listen. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is the power of salvation, to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you believe this? This is the offer that goes out to the whole ends of the earth. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And that is a decision we are all called to make. We don't drift into that. We decide. We choose. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it allows us to see us for who we really are and therefore respond accordingly and put our faith in him. Do not wait to believe in Jesus because one day, it might be tomorrow, it might be a million years from now, but one day, all will see on heaven and in hell and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. Some will merely acknowledge it and will be despair. Others will submit to it and it will be all joy. But hear me, we will all bow one way or another. And the offer before us is to turn to him and be saved. Let eternity for you be joy in Christ. Well, Jesus saw the self-centeredness of his disciples around the table with their dirty feet. He taught them the way of serving others by getting down and washing their feet. And he said, do 
to yourselves as I've done to you. You don't get unity by wanting unity. You get unity by believing in the power of Jesus and following the example he set before us. Let's pray.